Hey, this is John Oliva, and you are tuned in to Focus on Metal, so focus deeply. Focus Hey, Metalheads, welcome to yet another week of Focus on Metal. Scott here. Richie. And uh, we are rounding out Metal Month, week number four, with uh, part two of our Chris Sangaridis uh, interview, which uh, hopefully you guys caught episode one. If you haven't, then definitely go back to last week's episode and uh, and check that out. But as we head into uh, the last week of Metal Month, we have our final part with Chris. And uh, of course, you set that all up, Richie. Yeah, um, I often heard the second part because I didn't think it was going to happen because uh, I had to leave after an hour. Yeah. And um, I figured you'd wrap things up and uh, that'd be the end of it. Yeah. And uh, next thing I know, I get a text. I talk to him for another hour and I'm like, oh, wow, fantastic. So, yeah, two hour discussion with Chris. Um, You know, great guy. Yeah. You know, great memory. Really had a great memory. He was oh, yeah. able to remember all. When I questioned him on any of the albums he did, he was able to. He had distinct memories of how he wrote the songs with Priest. Yeah, you know, recording the Y and T record. Great, you know, great stories about Tin Lizzy. Um, just a really, really nice guy. Yeah, um, you know, good sense of humor. You know, I couldn't ask for more. Yeah, you know, oh, yeah. Take, taking two hours out of his out of his day to talk to us. Uh, we we probably could have ended up going longer. I, well, I, I was, you could have. You know, the first half, of course, you know, we did a lot of band stories and everything else, and then and then after you left, we kind of got techie for a while. Well, that's okay. I and, wasn't here. You know, I, I thought we kind of rounded out, and we and then we circled back, and then he's got some more great band stories. He got well, back into stuff. You would have got into probably Anvil and maybe Hello. I, I, you see, I don't know. I haven't heard it. Mm. Um. He's done so much stuff. Yeah. So it's like, we're, you know, you're not going to get it all in in an hour. So I picked and, and choose what I was going to talk about. Right. Of course, Lizzie was one and Y&T, all the ones I wanted to talk about, Priest. Right. Um, but he's done so much more, more yeah. than that. Um, it's only when, when I heard the interview back, I realized that he actually worked on Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. Mm. And we didn't ask him anything about that. And right. I'm, I'm like, fuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's definitely were other things that, that um, I mean, even what we did with Sabbath, I mean, we really only touched on it. The Eternal Idol. Yeah, you know, yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, so I think great interview. Really enjoyed talking to the guy. I mean, obviously, we spent two hours with him, so, yeah. And he yeah. still plays. Yeah. He's in a band. He still, yeah, with, he still plays, more. Yeah. which is great. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 pretty good. And uh, so why don't we uh, roll a track of the week, and then after that, we'll dive into... Some more with Chris Sangaridis. All right, and track of the week this week is from a band that doesn't seem to get much metal press at all, but this is actually their fifth album in, and the band I'm talking about is Lariel, and the album is called Skin and Bones. Just came out on November 4th on AFM, and, you know, this thing is a mix of, of Celtic rock and Gothic metal, a little bit of folk, some alternative in there, and, you know, just the album has a lot of different touches in there, you know, and probably the two bands that this band probably gets compared to the most would be like a lacuna coil or 
uh, Nightwish, and probably more so Nightwish, I think, because Lacuna Coil has kind of the trade-off, the the male-female vocals and, and all that, where Nightwish is more female vocals out front, and there's more of the orchestral, because definitely there's a lot of strings and things that go on with Lariel, but also some good raging guitar riffs as well. So if you like this one, you want to check out some more tracks, the official single off of Skin and Bones is the track numbers, and I'm sure you can find the video for that up on YouTube, or you could also go to the band's webpage, that is Lariel.net, spelled L-Y-R-I-E-L dot net, and I'm sure they'll have all the information up there as well. But the track I'm going to play for you tonight is the, actually the title track off of Skin and Bones, entitled amazingly Skin and Bones. So let's get right down to our track of the week from AFM recording artist Lariel from their brand new one, fifth album, Skin and Bones, came out November 4th. This is Skin and Bones. <laughs> track of the week like i said that is lariel off of their brand new one skin and bones and if you're digging it as i mentioned before head up to lariel.net check out all about the band so lots more to cover this week with our guest chris sangarides as we head into part two with him so since we got so much to talk about i'm gonna shut the hell up turn it back over to chris but, um another another band actually that, that was a huge influence on me and i did actually get to work with them albeit just the remix was free. Hmm. Um, Andy Fraser and Simon Kirk, amazing rhythm section uh, with Paul Carter and that voice, Paul Rogers. Yeah. 
gone. I, I noticed that they were, uh, what was it, in the 80s, Ireland were reissuing or re-releasing a bunch of their stuff, and they asked, they had Bob Clearmount and do 7-inch versions, and I had to do 12-inch versions of, of Wishing Well. Okay. And it was like, well, what do you mean? How do I make wish? What do you mean? Because in those days, it was all, you know, 12-inch remix, you know, but they were talking about, sort of, you know, disco tunes and the like. I mean, as far as rock bands were concerned, what the hell do you do to a five-minute song to make a 12-inch version? Or what are you talking about? You know, it, you know, it was, again, another way of then selling the same song again you know, for little money in, in recording, basically. It was just paying someone to mix it. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, it was, uh, it used to annoy the heck out of me, but it was free, and to have my name underneath the free logo was just, I mean, that was, made my day. <laughs> it absolutely made my day. It was amazing. Yeah, that was, de that was definitely fun. a legendary band. I mean, it's too bad that, oh. you know, that we lost costs yeah. when we did. That was just a shame for everybody. And, oh. uh, you know, It but. really was. It really was. But I didn't realize that Carsoff uh, grew up in the same neighborhood as I did oh. in North London, in Hendon, hmm. till I saw, um, I got the uh, a DVD box set and they they were, you know, there's footage of the guys playing and then, you know, being interviewed and blah, blah, blah. And it was um, Paul's brother, Simon, was a bit of a filmmaker. And he was saying, yeah, I've got this little uh, clip here of my uh, dad and brother, Paul, sitting eating fish and chips in the local fish and chip shop. And there it was, and the camera pans out outside, and I saw the name of it, Sunny Fish Shop. I used to go to that virtually every day on the way home from school. And I, I was like, oh my God, why if I didn't know that? This has been staked out there to find us, you know. <laughs> very strange small world, you know. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. So you'd mentioned Anvil a few minutes ago, and um, you know, obviously you yeah. were in the film and stuff. Were you amazed at the exposure that that one film caused that band? Uh yeah. I mean, I knew if it was a hit, success, that it would change a lot of things. But we never knew it was going to be a success because it was done very guerrilla styling. Mm -hmm. um, there was no budget as such. It was basically uh, coming from Sasha, the director's pocket, mm -hmm. to um, basically um, pay for the crew to be around to film the guys and then a cat load spent on editing it because it was only like 300 hours of footage that had to be cut into a cohesive story. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, and that's where the genius of it all uh, came to be because of the way Sasha made it. Uh, uh, you know, it's very tough to have a documentary that is actually almost you know, a story that someone's written because there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to it. You know, we all, you know, you know how it rolls. They start up and it's all high and then it goes low and then gets a bit better because they found Chris again and we're going to make an album and off we go. And, oh, no one wants it. We're back down again. <laughs> well, hey, we're playing this big festival and we're first on and it's packed. And there you go. You know, it was... Absolutely amazing, and, and 
I, I went around a lot with the guys back then. They were dragging us from pillar to post in these uh, film festivals around the world, which was great fun, I have to say. Uh, but, you know, I didn't expect, uh, you know, to be at a, a gig in London or somewhere in Germany or... And kids had come up, with pint, here, have a pint. I bought you a drink. <laughs> Thank you, but who the hell are you? You know, what? why are you... Well, that job you didn't... And you think, oh, crap, he must have seen the movie or something. <laughs> So, you know, people that, that saw it have been, you know, just phenomenal yeah. with it. You know, I mean, the, the reaction, and it definitely gave them a career yeah. now in, in, their, in their old age, if you like, you know. And I would imagine from your perspective that that was a, a pretty cool thing to see as well. That, you know, a band that really oh, did yeah. work so hard for so long to finally, yeah. you know, get their due. Well, yes, this is it. You know, uh, you know what, what do you want out of life now? I mean, all I ever wanted was a gig to play mm. and get paid for it, you know. And, and they weren't looking for millions or anything. It was like, if we could just do this all the time because we've been doing it for the past 40 years, you know, what a great way to be. Right. And I think where they are now. Yeah. And it's also interesting, too, when you think about, I mean, the drummer that Rob, I mean, Rob is a pretty amazing damn drummer. The fact that he didn't go sawed off with some other band, he stuck with no, Steve the whole time. That's right. That's right. They two were, you know, like a, a married couple. Mm. You know, like I said, you saw that what, that, that argument in, in the studio where they were killing each other and I had to be, uh, you know, Dr. Phil. No, no, boys. Um, but that, that's what I mean. You know, they could absolutely go apeshit on each other. Yeah. That's it, I'm quitting, I'm leaving you asshole. Oh, you're an asshole, fuck you, fuck you, whatever. <laughs> and and then the next day it was like all, all fine after Uncle Chris had gone in and uh, kind of showed them, well, what are you arguing about? We've got the best opportunity going yeah. if you've ever had. So, you know, <laughs> shut up and grow <laughs> up, you stupid. <laughs> so, yeah, there was, um, you know... <laughs> very uh, fraught emotions because loads of things were going on while we were making the movie. I mean, we were talking to each other going, dude, you know, we all knew, I knew Sasha as well because of, you know, from back in the day. But he's making a movie. Are we going to be looking like, made to look like bigger idiots than we already are? <laughs> or is it, you know, or is it, no, nah, man, he's not going to stitch us up. But then Robert say, well, he might. <laughs> he could, because if it makes for a better movie, then we all look like a bunch of idiots and everyone's laughing at us, then that's not good, is it? So everyone was really like, eh. but with, you know, I have to say, all those fears were quickly, you know, dismissed after seeing, you know, what he did, the way he edited it the sympathetic way that he approached it and told the story. Mm. Um, and, and people got to see, you know, what goes on when you don't get to the heights, you know, when you're supposed to, like yeah. back in the day, you know. But ironically, no one, um, when they did that Japanese uh, stadium gig, you see at the beginning of the film, um, after that, uh, they couldn't get any record deal at all. 
no one wanted to know in the States. And then the following year, or that, uh, there they were, Metallica, you know, <laughs> Anthrax, you know, Slayer, all these double bass drummed, fast, you know, mm. I don't know what you'd call it, rash, speed, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It suddenly, so they were kind of a bit ahead of the game, if you like, of, for that genre, and nobody wanted to know. And then when they were signing that style, a little while later, and they were, yeah, oh, sorry, you're too old, or, you know, mm. you've done, you know, we passed on you already, <laughs> which is always hard to get back in if someone said no in the first place. Right. So yeah. it's kind of, you know, to get a chance like that, I mean, who would have thought that an ex-roadie of yours would go off and become a great screenwriter, <laughs> write a ridiculously successful movie, for Steven Spielberg to, to produce and direct, whatever. And then suddenly you've got a few bucks extra and you find your old pal and think, you know what, we can make a film of this. This is ridiculous. They're still playing. Oh, my God. And then it was, well, why? And they said, well, we haven't made a decent record. Still working with Chris. Well, you've got to find Chris then. Yeah, where is he? And that's basically the story. You know, in, in real life, that was what it was. And that is what the movie is. It is real life. That was what was going on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, amazing. It is still, when I think about it, it's a pretty unique and bizarre scenario to be in. You know, getting followed around by some dude with a camera, which after a while you forget what he's doing it just becomes your pal standing there holding his camera at you and then that's when the, the, the good bits happen because mm. you start you know just saying anything and everything <laughs> yeah and I'm sure it would also help the fact that they really did know this guy, you know. It's not like oh, you yeah. know when Metallica did some kind of monster and they oh, yeah. guys that they didn't know. They, like this guy was just uh, a buddy. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, that's right. You know because he did. He did them proud. He really did, yeah. genuinely. Um, so you know it, it, it's done what it's done. It's won God knows how many awards. You know, amazing. You know, and it was more. I put my own. Uh, and uh, what's it, IMDB page, mm -hmm. where, you know, you're an actor and <laughs> I get to play myself. <laughs> Sounds a bit disgusting, but <laughs> it's, it's, never it's a heck of a character if you can get to play it, so you're doing it pretty yeah, well exactly. so far.
So Richie had to head off, but okay. uh, one of the things is that I'm obviously just like, this is my studio and I'm a gearhead. So we can talk a little bit about gear because usually Richie, yeah. that's when Richie starts to daze over is because yeah. I'll be talking to somebody about a piece of gear and he'll be looking at me like, what are they talking about? And a lot of times yeah. I'm lucky enough to be able to point to th that same piece of equipment in my studio and to be like, Oh, okay. And it gives me this look like, what the? Like, do you fucking have everything? But, you know, I've been getting this stuff since the 70s. So, yeah, I kind of do have a lot of stuff. Obviously, you've kind of gone through all the major phases of recording. And um, yeah. I would imagine that right now you probably spend a lot of your time doing, you know, Pro Tools rigs, but maybe with a mix of, of analog. Like, I mean, I've got a digital workstation, but I mean, all my front end stuff, it's all analog. I love going yeah. through analog and just using oh. the workstation as just my kind of my editing desk. Because yeah. I don't know about you, but cutting tape was all. I was never very good at cutting tape. But um oh. But, you know, as far as, you know, with this, you know, new way of recording stuff, is there, like, any, like, really great gear out there that's really excited you over the past couple of years? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have kind of a eclectic uh, studio. I mean, do you remember in the Anvil movie, there's a, a, um, a shot of me turning a knob on a compressor that goes up to 11? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, well, that's... My favorite compressor of all time is the Chiswick Reach stereo valve uh, compressor, mm. and it actually does go to 11, so it's got to be good. <laughs> uh, and that's actually what got me interested in the first class. I thought, what? What's that? These guys are crazy. Brilliant. Let me try it. And it basically remixed this drum loop I had at the time when they came in to demonstrate it at the studio. I'm absolutely floored by it. Amazing piece of uh, equipment. Uh, and I tend to use that a lot for doing vocals. Uh, through Neumann 87 is my choice, really. Mm. Start with that. Uh, and it goes into that. Uh, and then into my um, TLA audio valve uh, console. And the recording machine of choice is an IZ radar. Uh, 24. Mm. Uh, are you familiar with those? I am not familiar with the IZs, no. Okay, well, it's it's basically a standalone uh, computer-driven digital recorder. Mm. Uh, it uses hard disk, and you can back up onto DVDs um, or different hard disks. They, they come out, and you can put a new one in yeah. per project. Uh, and you can link these machines up to, you know, four of them or whatever, you know, but they're basically 24 tracks. And it will do and in a WAV format. Uh, so you'll see the waves, um, and each song is a different project or, so, you know, um, so there, it's like putting on a multi-track. Yeah. You know, here we go. And so project one is this song, project two, et cetera. 24 tracks of this, you see the waveforms, and you can basically do everything that you can do on a Pro Tools or a Logic or whatever uh, digital workstation, cut, paste, copy, even fader moves up and down, um, uh, reverse stuff, um, all sorts of things, and all the dedicated keys. Mm. Um, which is much quicker. There's no mouse involved. 
Yeah. And the transport system is like an old-fashioned tape. Rewind, fast forward, stop, record, play. Just like you, you think you're rewinding a tape. Yeah. But of course you're not. And the sound, this, this is where it wins. The A to B converters in these machines are just sublime. They are really some of the best sounding things you've heard. So going from a, a tube desk, each channel has a stereo um, valve in it, straight into this thing, and then played back through the machine again, through the, uh, the board. Mm. It's just fantastic, you know, and I use, I've got a Pro Tools rig, but that's there for mastering stuff or editing the multi-tracks that I've been recording if it needs to, you know, whatever. Yeah. You know, cut the spit off the Tom mics, for example, or something, you know. So if I, you know, just transport the stuff onto that, do whatever I need to do, put it back onto the radar, everything cleaned up, you know. Uh, um, you can see because there are waves, one on top of each other, you know, where noises are on the track, and cut them out, mute them, dip them, whatever you want to do. Yeah. And it just sounds beautiful. It really does. And I've got permanently plugged um, uh, in uh, it's a, basically, you can have 64 channels at mixed down on, on the valve desk, uh, and there are eight um, subgroups, and so I use uh, three stereo pairs, one being uh, the drums, one and two, and I basically uh, parallel compress the drums. So, say they're on eight tracks, those eight will get fed to the uh, subgroup, which has the Chizik Reach compressor on, and then they would also get to the uh, main bus without, you know, going through the compressor. So it's compressed and non-compressed, and I can mix the two together to get, you know, squash the hell or subtle or whatever I want. Yeah, get the dynamics out of that. Yeah, exactly. And then I have a, a subgroup for the guitars, and another subgroup for backing voices, whatever, you know, stereo, whatever miscellaneous thing. And then two uh, other subgroups for the vocal, lead vocals and then whatnot. And that way, I get a dynamic that still is there. Uh, and it sounds better than having to use a compressor on the entire mix. Mm which, you know, of course, the loudest thing dictates what compression it, it will do, which, to me, doesn't work so well. You know, you need, I, I like the fact that I can control the dynamic of each instrument separately and keep the levels where they should be without any disastrous peaks here or there. Yeah. And then get the best possible, yeah, the best possible thing, and and uh, yeah, and I'll use TLA uh, stereo compressors again, tube compressors for that. And I use uh, for reverse. I've got um, uh, what's it called? Uh, very expensive. That's all I know. Uh, single unit. Uh, since my illness, my memory I think actually has been awful, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I use Yamaha Effect uh, TL, uh, no, um, TC Electronics. Mm, uh, nice. they, that, they're really, really good. Um, what the 
County. That's it, Bruce County Reverb Unit. Uh, amazing. It's a single U, and it's some of the best reverbs I've ever because I never used to use uh, reverbs uh, uh, since what stopped working at the, the, the major studios that had echo plates. Mm. Because the, the, the digital reverb always sounded a bit synthetic, weird. If you sort of try to use it to put the entire bag into a room, it would mush it. It would be awful. Yet this Bricasti is fantastic for that. You can really use reverb like we, we used to be able to do in the 70s. Basically, the only effects you had <laughs> was the two echo plates, if you were lucky, and the tape delay. And that was your reverb and your echo. That was it, my friend. That, that's all you could do. Uh, but there was a certain sound that it's it imparted by using the reverb in different amounts on each of the tracks that you'd recorded. Yeah. And, you know, phenomenal. I think your setup really addresses one issue I see a lot with a lot of home studio yeah. setups. Is For whatever reason nowadays, they never make boards with enough damn inserts. Like you're lucky if you get yeah. two inserts on an entire board nowadays. So most people opt to do everything in a single chain in post and they do exactly yeah. what you were talking about that's horrible to do is they add yeah. verb and compression and everything to their final stuff and it just all mushes it and makes it like sonically sterile. And I think part of it's the way they manufacture because I can remember back in the 80s at one point I had this beautiful H&H 24 track board and there were inserts mm. on every damn channel and I like yeah. I wish I never sold the damn thing. I blame my wife for yeah. that one, but you know, just they don't they don't put inserts on anything anymore. No, uh, no, yeah, because of, of this digital workstation malarkey that you know um, it could all be done with plugins, and it's amazing actually when I get like kind of a naive, not naive, but you know, a new band that all they know is some kind of Cubase scenario mm. or whatever. And they come in and they and they ask me what plugin plugins have I got for the radar? And I show them these racks of stuff, and I say, there they are. <laughs> and they, what, what, what? I said, that is what your machine is trying to copy. So why would I have a copy of something that is real? It's like, are you nuts? But. You can't blame them because they weren't around when it was done, you know, in the way I'm, I'm talking, you know. There's some great technology, don't get me wrong, I'm not, um, uh, you know, uh, what's it, uh, Neanderthal in that respect. I will use whatever it takes to get the job done that I have in my head, for example, you know. And basically what happened over such a long time doing this, uh, the experience will tell you that if you did this, this, and this, then you could get that. And, and that's basically what it's about, being able to, you know, use what's, you know, there. Because we used to get flown all over the place. You'd go into a studio you've never been before. They're paying serious bucks for you to be in there. You've never worked in there. And they haven't got the, your favorite microphone that you always use, and you can't get one. Right. So, well, what to do? Well, what have we got? Ah, yes, you've got one of those. Well, I use 
yeah, okay, let's try. And that's what you've got to do. You've got to be able to use what's there and make a great job out of it. Mm. Um, and really what I, I've come to realize, as long as you've got kind of what you need, i.e. if you use condenser microphones, you've got condenser microphones, whether they're a different make to what you're used to, doesn't matter. Um, as long as you've got that, then you should be able, it's, well, it's down to the individual that makes it work because you have the experience of, of just being able to, to be dropped in somewhere you've never been before and make a fantastic record. But it all does, you know, you've got to have the band that can play. You've got to have a decent song that's been arranged properly because if it isn't arranged properly, you, you end up sounding like a, you know, it's a mush yeah. because a lot to do with the clarity of, of, of music is the way it's been arranged, the way the bass drum and the, and the bass guitar lock in. There's our groove, okie dokie. Now we put in some nice, you know, keyboards in there, pads that don't swamp everything but add stuff and then the, the attack of the guitar and, and so on and so forth. And, and basically, less on a track, it genuinely is more in this scenario because, you know, lots of, um, <laughs> especially in the 80s, uh, guitar players say, hey, man, how many tracks can I put of the, you know, the riff? You know, I'm thinking if I did eight. And you're going, why? <laughs> well, it sounds huge. Oh, Really? Yeah, 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 it went. I said, well, then I'd do my old, you see, imagine you've got, that's the stereo um, frequency response. It's, you know, six inches wide, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, if you put six tracks across that, you draw the lines, you divide it into a six, how would it be better if you just drew in the middle and did two guitars and you've got suddenly three times the space of your six, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, because it, the spe- you know the, the spectrum doesn't get any bigger. The, the, you know it's there. That's the limitations of it. So why have six guitars competing for the space in the spectrum frequency spectrum that two can do and be louder? Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Oh yeah. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff you know what we do put it up to 11 11, exactly one louder why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder these go to 11 you don't you don't get any bigger by the more you add on the smaller it becomes because it can't fit into the space There's, there's not enough Room, it doesn't expand. It's not like an expanded suitcase where you can just keep adding it so it becomes bigger. No, this thing is locked down. So six guitars competing with each other, really, is what they're doing, will sound smaller than two guitars, yeah. you know, yeah. for the same thing, and clearer and more and bigger. And and that's kind of what, what I end up doing. And, and when you get, get to mixing is, what can I get rid of? Right. <laughs> what, can I add, you know, how can I make this, you know, build from the beginning to the end? I mean, normally you've arranged it, so it does. But when you start looking at it seriously to mix, because as you're recording the thing, 
you know, you, you're not really paying too much attention to the balance of what's going on. You, you're having the, the thing that you're recording kind of a bit too loud for the track, so you can hear the mistakes or, or whatever that is going down correctly. Mm. So really, when you get down to mixing, that's the first time you hear everything where it should be in, in the balance of things. Yeah. You know, in a great scheme. So then you listen and think, oh, I guess really something's going up in the chorus. It's not getting bigger, it's getting mushy. Well, oh, crap, we did that guitar. If we don't need it, cut it out and boost the bass guitar, for example, there or, or something. Yeah. That kind of thing that, that makes it sound great. Yep. You know, um, it's, uh, yeah. and again, I mean, it's taken me God knows how many years to have the confidence in myself to know that what I've done is correct and right and will not get any better no matter what else I do. <laughs> Or it sounds a little bit bassy or whatever. So that is 
the kind of sound that you're going to get when you start micing things up. If it's a bright room, it will sound a little bright, but go with it because that's the nature of that room. Just make it sound as great as you can in there, and nine times out of ten, it'll be fine when you take it away. Yeah. But to get confidence, you know, it's it's <laughs> it's really hard because you know. Back in the day of, of the huge budgets, you know, they're, they're spending thousands a day for you to be in this place. Mm. So you better know what the hell you're doing, pal. And then they spend all that money. They want to hit records. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's a great tip for anyone that's doing a home studio, too, that you got to play songs you know, plus things across all different ranges through your monitors and really that's take right. a critical listen of what your room and what your monitors sound like. And your right. recording is going to be so much better just for taking that time and knowing what's going on Absolutely. with it. Absolutely, yeah. my friend. It's, it's, it's what it's about, you know. And a lot of, of, of producing is actually listening. Hmm actually genuinely listening to what you're doing. It is, you know, you, you have to take a seat, sit and listen to what they're playing and, and to have enough musical vibe about you that you can say, you know what, you really shouldn't be playing fours, you should be playing like 16th or something on the high half of this tune mm -hmm. because it, it, it's not grooving enough, it's not... It's got to touch you. It's got to get into your heart and soul. It's got to make you, if it's a hard rock song, you've got to want to move your head, you know. Mm -hmm. If it's a swing, you want to, you know, all of these things. And if it doesn't do that, there's something wrong with it. Yeah. You have to find out. And, and that's what I mean by listening. There's so much um, involved in, in, you know, producing a record. It, it's more like, Producing, I think, is the wrong word in, in some respects. It's more like directing. Mm. Like a film director's role is to vision of the, of the movie. Producer, in, in that terminology, is, is there as the guy that the director, you know, looks to, to, to enable him to get, you know, whatever it takes to make his movie. Yeah. And to bounce ideas off, you know. Um, so it's kind of a slightly wrong name to me I always felt that right. uh, but you know you should always listen as well to other members of the band when they're talking when you're playing back something you know I keep an ear open to yeah. hey man you know you should have you know why and then I say what did you say oh well, I thought maybe it's a great idea go and try it Again, you try it. If it's no good, this then you press the undo button. <laughs> yeah. You know, no problem. You know, absolutely. Uh, because I think a producer that is completely blinkered in his own world and not listening to the band that he's producing is not right. Mm. Because basically, you've been trusted uh, to to deliver this artist's vision of his songs, that his songs are very precious to him. So you've got to be able to get in there and, and understand his psyche and work and bring out and nurture and make this the best performance he can do. It's, I tell you, it's so much responsibility that if you stop to think about it, you'd never walk in a studio. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you'd be petrified, you know. Yeah. But um, 
that that's the great thing about actually enjoying what you do. I imagine one of the hardest things that you must encounter. Mm-hmm. I know at least I was one of the things that I've always had a hard time with with artists when I'm doing stuff for them, you know, engineering, producing, is with guitar yeah. players of getting yeah. them to trust you to not yeah. listen to their amp but to listen yeah. to the studio monitors because you find guitar players they get in there and they get this great tone that sounds great to them five yeah. feet away from the amp and their ears are five yeah. feet in the air and they think yeah. that's the tone and you're like yeah. no that you know so i mean i've literally had people before where i've had to move mm-hmm. the mic and gone put your ear right there that's what the mic there you is go. so do you, <laughs> did you encounter that a lot especially like in the 80s well yeah i mean it was always difficult in the 80s to get guitar tones that they were expecting mm-hmm. because things you know especially in the 70s there wasn't that much gain on well, let's talk about martial heads you mm-hmm. know they, they there was no master volume preamps whatever right and it was you know tube streamers came out um, and it was you know trying to get this heavy heavy sound and it was pretty difficult because, you know, uh, you know, Fender Strat with its stock pickup, bit not exactly, you know, zoom zoom kind of sound. Yeah, no, anything after maybe seventy four with a Strat with the stock yeah. pickups, those they had no power to them. Exactly, and then you know there was the others with the Gibson uh, humbuckers, let's call fantastic, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. But if you listen to the old guys playing, you know, the Paul Carsoffs of this world, whatever. You know, there's virtually no distortion. You know, how the hell they made those things sing was through their sheer power and their vibrato and all the rest of it, you know. And it is a good story. Um, Judas Priest, for example, when we worked on Sandwing, I remember them coming in going, oh, it doesn't sound like it does in the studio. And no matter how hard you have to say, look, this is a five watt speaker, and you know you just you know it's not going to sound like it does when you're standing there with your ear, mm. you know, on this blessed um, um, what's it little monitor. Um, so it was always difficult when it came down to painkiller. Uh, I managed to get, they asked me, we're going into South France, you know, do we need anything? I said, yes, get a Soldano head. Yeah, okay, you know, so they do. Turn to do the guitars over there, and they pull out this Rockman, um, each of them, and these JBL studio monitors, and a TAC mixing console, and a a couple of uh, Amcron DC300 amps. And I said, where's the guitar stuff? Oh, this is. What do you mean? (laughs) Yeah, you see. They had basically recreated the sound that they got in the studio for live to the extent of using, you know, these whopping great big 215 JBLs with uh, tweeters and horns. And I said, well, where the hell do you expect me to mind this? <laughs> you know, what did they do with this? Uh, it was terrible, I said. And I remember what had happened, uh, you know, with them and the marshals and the volume and all that. I had done, prior to that, some recordings with uh, King Diamond. And Andy LaRock liked doing his solos with one of those little Galleon Kruger 
combos with a 206 inch speaker. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he said, do you mind if we try this, Chris? I want to show you something. I really like it. If you don't, then, you know, sure, man, let's see. So there it was, uh, AKG 414, really close, and it was so quiet, the sound. Put it in the control room, lovely old Neve, up it goes. Wow, perfect, brilliant, yeah. So that's what we did. So remembering that, I said, right, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> Set up the Soldado with a 4x12 EV cabinet in uh, a side room there. Put all your freaking live rig down the other end of the studio. And we had a feed going to both. I had a big distant ambient mic uh, in the room with all the JBL shit. And I had a uh, 414 right up close on the Soldano at really quiet volume. And that blew their minds when they came into the control room. I had the close mic Soldano on the left uh, for KK and his ambience on the right, and which I call my vortex, <laughs> <laughs> reversed for Glenn's. So his close mic was on the right and his distant was on, on the left. And whenever a solo happened, the guy that was playing the solo, his rhythm guitar would stop. And that was it. to understand that a 100 watt Marshall is going to blow the shit out of an NS10 
we didn't even have those back then, you know. Um, it was was hard, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> but there you go. Yeah. And now a lot of people are coming around back to that too because they're finding Ooh. out just putting a little Fender Champ in there and micing yeah. it close. I mean, all it's got is a volume. Yeah. There's even tone in the damn thing, and it sounds exactly. monstrous. Yeah, I tell you something to do with one of those is if you've got access to a grand piano, open the lid, put the champ in one end, and hold the pedals down with a weight, mm. and you check out and mic the other end out with the strings. You check the reverb that you get. <laughs> <laughs> I'd mic up the champ from the other end, but it's phenomenal. Ah. I saw, um, what was it called? Uh, Z-Horn Rolo from the Magic Band, Captain B-Class Magic mm. Band, do that. And it absolutely amazed me. And I remember we were working with Concrete Blonde at Jackson Brown Studio in Santa Monica. And I did that there. And he walked in and saw that. I was absolutely like, wow, that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) And that that made me smile. Oh, yes. (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, there's loads and so many things that, you know, that you can do. And that's when you realize how how much older you become. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, I've been so lucky because I was around the, the time when we were kind of me and my peers uh, were, were making the recording industry, mm. you know, as part of the, the new modern recording era, if you like, but also got to see and work, you know, with, you know, tape and cutting it with razor blades and sticking it together and, uh, you know, good old-fangled ways of doing it. But it was amazing, you know, uh, once you start, when I started working in the studio, to realize how brilliant that some of the recordings from the 60s when it was four track, you know, mm. for Sergeant Peppers, there you go, how wonderful they could do it with, with four tracks. And here we are. We went to 24 from 16. Oh, my goodness, what are we going to do with all those <laughs> tracks? But, you know, in such a very short space of time, you know, we went from, uh, you know, camels to spaceships. Yeah. As far as, you know, the recording industry goes, yeah. from Bakelite tubes and God knows what, to, you know, amazing sample, digital, blah, blah, blah. Uh, unbelievable. But I tell you, my pet peeve is the MP3. I hate the bloody thing. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it seems so ludicrous to me that with all this amazing technology, it all ends up on something that essentially sounds worse than the freaking uh, cassette. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just beyond me. Yeah. I, I think that's all down to you know being able to store a billion songs on a matchbox as opposed to you know just half a billion. You know, if they did MP4s, you know, whatever. But. Yeah. Well, I think part of it, too, is that we were buying music and stuff in the 70s. I mean, you you listened to that stuff. You were, you know, you had, yeah. you had headphones on, you were capturing nuances. Yep. And now, I mean, people, they like, they have music playing, but are they really listening to a lot of that? Granted, Absolutely. a lot of what you have on the airwaves right now isn't worth listening yeah. to anyway. So MP3 it up, that's fine. But for really good yeah. music, there's nothing like, if you can get it on vinyl, then, I mean, that's the best. Bad because it just it just has that that ambiance. Oh. But otherwise, 
otherwise, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. you got to have this at least have a CD and to get something out of it. But I, I'm I'm 100 percent with you with the MP3. That's for sure. No, absolutely right. No, you're so right when you say that uh, they don't listen to it in the same way. You're absolutely right. Walking around with those little buds in your ears, mm. my goodness, mate. Yeah, and it's just it's just it's like in in an elevator permanently with its music mm. going on in the background because you're doing other things and still got these buds in your head to this rubbish, you know, quality. It's not right. Cause you know how hard people work to make their records sound so cool. Yeah. <laughs> and then it gets reduced to that. <laughs> it's, you know, and I actually AB, you know, an MP3 to a vinyl uh, of the same tune, and I tell you what, I'm nearly bloody tears listening to how much better, and I mean significantly. You would have to be virtually deaf not to listen hear the differences. You know, it was a real eye opener when you actually do hear it back-to-back, back, you just go, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I talk to people about it, and I mean, the best thing I tell them is, I say, well, you've heard a sample, right? And they're like, well, yeah. And then you start to explain, you know, well, sample means you're sampling. So all the stuff between the samples, it's gone yeah. bye-bye. And then they're like, yes. oh, is that why it sounds like crap? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. That's it. You know, in, in us said, <laughs> come the revolution, that's what I reckon. <laughs> uh, yeah. Before I let you go, I do want to talk to you a little bit about, you know, you did start your own record label, Dark Lord Records. And yeah. um, I'd like to give you a chance to just talk a little bit about that. Well, yeah, um, we, we started um, a label to try and help uh, some of the bands I was working with. Um, my partner in the label, Dave Cousins, who's a... Uh, in the band called The Straws, um, amazing guitar player, singer, songwriter. And we were doing, uh, I was uh, making an album with him. He was asking me who I'd been working with and such and such, and I mentioned this band and that band, and he says, well, what, what happens with these guys? I said, well, they go and try and sell it, you know, off the back of a lorry, a gig, uh, whatever, you know. And I said, what about getting a label and da 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 And I went, okay. Well, before you know it, the distributors, uh, because Straws had their own record label, so we went to their distributor, RSK, and said, yeah, we're up for it. Great idea. Then we went to Sony, ATV Music, who were the publishers. Would they be, you know, to actually administer the, the product? And yes, of course we will. And we were like, Wow. And then they said, well, you know, tell us what you need, how much advance and what have you. We couldn't believe it. So we put together a plan, uh, by which time uh, Sony had bought EMI uh, and I decided that they're not giving any further advances for new publishing uh, product. Uh, that's their policy. So it was like, but we still want to do it. And I went, oh, great. So basically, a long story was to say that it's been funded by us, our own money, to, mm. to do it. And it basically is groups that I've worked with, and we feel that they can come along on board with us, and we can develop something and hopefully move them on 
sort of bigger label with much more clout and power. But as you know, uh, over here you can't get a gig without having an album. Right. It's living, you know, you know, released by a known entity, if you like, a, a label. So that's kind of what we did, and the idea is we basically lease the album from the act, and we split all profits fifty-fifty, and that's it. Wow. And they don't have to give me any money from their tours or merchandise or anything. Hmm. So basically, if I make a buck, they've made a buck. And I can't, you know, it's basically done by musicians for musicians. I'm not a businessman. I'm a musician that's a producer, that's an engineer, and all that kind of caper. Um, and basically, that was the ethos of it, you know. Everyone has to get paid, hmm. whether it's a buck or a million. <laughs> it doesn't matter, and it's a it's a good vibe, you know. People like that, and people, you know, trying to find what the catch is, and there is no catch. Yeah. <laughs> That's it, you know. And it's down to everyone, you know. We promote it to a certain amount, um, and we can't do, you know, huge promotions because we're not like that, you know, but as long as if you're digging, um, the reviews that we get are phenomenal so far, touch wood, uh, for all the bands that, that have been on there. Um, so, you know, I'm, you know, we want, you know, a big label to come along in, in a year or two and say, that band are great, we want them. Hmm. And it'd be like, well, job done, you know. Because I still get to be, hopefully, I still get to be the producer. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, you know, it's basically kind of helping them to help themselves to regenerate and start, you know, where there are actually human beings behind the labels who want to, um, you, know, you know, trust their ear and judgment as opposed to listening to a company policy that we need to make a billion dollars by next week so let's sign, you know, four chicks with big tits and God knows what, you know. Right, right. So we can only do our best and, and try, but there's enough kind of, you know, people with the same mindset. And, and to be fair, I think there are, you know, um, because all you've got to do over here is, is you know, and I include Europe, go to any of the major festivals, you know, rock festivals, metal festivals, whatever they're called, and you will see hundreds of, of really good rock bands or metal bands or whatever the hell they're called these days. Uh, you know, well, how can you get 100,000 people to turn up uh, at one of these things at ludicrous prices to get into these events? How, you know, why aren't you signing these people for the major language? Mm. You know, there's the market right there. There's the audience. You can see them. <laughs> I, I don't get it. I really don't get why they don't do that. You know, think long term. Right. Well, I think you said the key word when you first started talking mm. about it. And the, the word that got me excited was you talked about developing. And I mean, the, the labels, the big labels nowadays. They don't do that. And when you said that word, it was like, oh, that's the missing thing that's on so many labels. Exactly. That is what we, 
you know, said we're going to be a little guerrilla organization, you know, on, on street level, you know, hmm. where, you know, we can you know, get them playing every which way so they can build up a following so that there is a demand for their product, whether it's 20 units or 2 million, you know. We work with a lot of independent bands on the show, too, because I really love yeah. to do that. That's and- right. The other thing I see, and you said it when you talked about, you know, how you split things and the fact that you don't approach doing 360 deals and things like that, is that we yeah. work with a lot of fantastic bands that they just, it's just incredible, incredible music. Yeah. But whenever they've been approached with any kind of a deal, a lot of times they've walked away simply because end of the day, they look and go, well, what is it that exactly we get out of this deal except maybe distro and a lot of these bands have gone and found ways to get distro all by themselves and just you know continue to stay independent and but you guys have kind of that magic thing of it's a fair thing that you're doing and you got the development and also you've got people like yourself that aren't suits that really love and understand music and actually have a clue about how to do these things there you go that's absolutely right man that's brilliant yeah yeah Absolutely. <laughs> See, if we could just get more labels like you guys. That's it. That would be a start, eh? That would be what, you know, what we need. Yeah. It's, it's really that. Upset. And it's also get people at radio stations, get these programmers, get it back to mm-hmm. these people that are independent stations that these... One, you get DJs that actually have a clue what they're playing, but can, but the right. old days of going back in the stacks and pulling, because I, I was on radio for a while, going back in the stacks, pulling out an album and playing that deep cut, that thing that nobody ever heard before, and, yes. and, and instead yes. of going, oh, we got the MP3 from headquarters, these are the 16 songs we can play this week, and we play them ad nauseum. It's, and yeah. you wonder why, I mean... Don't blame piracy. Why don't you try playing some half-decent songs instead of just the same 16 pieces of pablum you've been playing? It's like, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm a little passionate about this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Well, as I say, come the revolution. <laughs> Rock shall rise and roll. <laughs> but uh, we're definitely, you know, here on Focus on Metal, yeah, you know, we're definitely here yeah. to support Dark Lord Records. Uh, I'm I'm really enthused oh, about what awesome. you guys do. You know, we really have a, a promote the independent band mindset as well and try to spread the word. And, and because, you know, we... You know, we've got an international audience, so a lot of times we're able yeah. to cross-pollinate, which is kind of what it's all about, is is kind Good of that, job. you know, they don't, no one advertises anymore. There's no more marketing budget, so it's down to kind of yeah. independent folks like us to spread the word. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely right. And, and you know, that that's great. Long, long may you do it, you know. I hope so. It's, you know, absolutely. Absolutely, my friend. Brilliant. Cool. Well, I'll cool. tell you, it's, I've been psyched about this since ever since Richie said he had booked you to come on. And it is, uh, it is an honest-to-God honor to finally get to talk to you, especially where I have just enjoyed so much of your product for so many years. And, of course, uh, now I'm anxiously waiting for new UFO with the uh yeah. stamp on it as well. So. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been great talking with you. You too. And right. we'll do it again sometime soon. <laughs> I, I hope so. I, I really look forward to it because we have like yeah. barely scratched the surface of, of what exactly. you're all about. I know, I know, uh, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Lots more to talk about. All right, my friend. 
All right. You have a great rest of the day. And uh, again, I appreciate you taking so much time to talk to us. And I'm sure Richie's like kicking himself that he couldn't stay for the whole thing today. But uh, I honestly, I really thank you absolutely for coming on and and spending time. And I would love to have you back. My pleasure. Awesome. Absolutely. You take care. You too. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right. That will wrap it up for this week of Focus on Metal. And, of course, it's also end of Metal Month 2014. Always Metal Month. <laughs> it is. It is. But, <laughs> hey, you know, and I know I noticed this year, too, is it really got downplayed the whole 11-11. Last year, you know, people were happy Metal Day and, you know, it was all over the place. And this year, it was pretty low-key. I don't know if... All of a sudden, we went two years, and then everyone went, yeah, all right, it's old. Yeah, I think that's what happened. I think it was just fucking Hallmark didn't put out cards, and that was it. You think so? Hallmark hasn't put out cards. We're screwed. Yeah, well, Bob had his movie in the te- in the theater, so I hope yeah. that did well. Yeah, I mean, that's that's been playing all over the place. That's great to see. And uh, So, yeah, that's cool. And, of course, we've got lots more coming up. December might not be Metal Month, but uh, we are still... Packed uh, up. Oh, big time. <laughs> big time. Uh, just it's insane the amount of stuff that's I thought we were gonna hit this little bit of lull and all of a sudden we have a tidal wave of stuff that hit all Yeah, but all we got it we got we got the project still to do. Yes. Uh so we've you know, there's still interviews to schedule on yeah. that and you're getting hit up now with interviews. Yeah. So it's um the releases still keep coming. I don't I don't think there's been a lull in the releases the last couple of weeks. Normally around now there's a is a bit of a slowdown. Right. There's right. still some pretty big records coming right. out. Right, yeah. The, the oh, end. yeah, definitely. So, you know, I'm sure January will be busy and February will be busy. I'm hoping sometime within there, there probably is going to be a week of no focus on metal. Take a week off. But, turn, uh, turn your emails off. Yeah. But uh, anyways, that will do it for this week. I hope you guys enjoyed our two-week talk with Chris Sangarides. Next week, we'll be back with some shorter interviews and a lot more good stuff. This just in, we might actually have a visit from the one and only Joe Lynn Turner. So, uh, you know, until then, keep up with us on Twitter, focusonmetal.net, focusonmetal.blogspot.com. And uh, that's about it. Any last words? No. No? It's December now. More metal. (laughs) (laughs) And then by the time this one comes out, you'll be in the homeland. Yes, I will. There you go. Listen to metal. <laughs> I'm going out with my mates and having a few points of Guinness talking you'll be about going, metal. You'll be going, hey, I saw these guys and I saw these guys. Right? <laughs> and when you leave, they'll be going, God, that bastard's gone home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pro- yeah, I'll go home this weekend and I'll, you know, oh, I talked to this guy this week and last week I talked to that guy and like, bastard. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, uh, wish you a safe trip and, uh, Hope you have some good metal experience while you're over there and probably come back, make me envious. But uh, until next week, this is Scott and Richie saying have yourselves a good metal week. And remember, focus on metal. Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.